Welcome to the Old Testament Reading Plan Podcast. I'm your host, Joel, and today we're focusing on Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 33. You can find and subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. All the links are in the show notes. If questions come up during the course of your reading, please feel free to ask them at bit.ly slash capital A lowercase sk hyphen capital O capital T. Once again, that's bit.ly slash ask hyphen OT. I apologize for the upload delay with this episode. My family moved across several states this week and we're still getting settled. Because of that and due to a question that required a longer answer, the analysis of the texts that we read this week is going to be a little lighter than usual. Please bear with me over the next couple of weeks as well as my family gets settled here in northern Indiana. The question that required a longer answer uh, will dedicate the entire second half of the show this week to that, so all of the analysis of the text will come before the break. Throughout Scripture, we see God making covenants on a regular basis, from making a covenant with Noah and all of creation after the flood, to covenanting with Abraham that he would be a father of a great nation, that he would inherit land, that God would be with him. All this, and and then the covenant of the Mosaic law, it seems like God just can't get enough of covenants. Generally speaking, in scripture, there are two different kinds of covenants. There is the conditional covenant and the unconditional covenant. Conditional covenants are covenants that require both parties to fulfill conditions. Usually that's, uh, if you obey my commands, then I will bless you. And that's the sort of covenant we see this week uh, in Deuteronomy. Unconditional covenants, however, have no such prerequisites. The covenant that God made with Abraham, for example, was an unconditional covenant. Regardless of Abraham's behavior, God would fulfill the covenant to make Abraham the father of a great nation. But the covenant we see in these chapters of Deuteronomy is a conditional covenant. God's response to Israel is dependent upon whether Israel keeps their end of the covenant. Now, we can always trust God to be faithful to hold up God's end of the covenant, regardless of what that looks like, whether that's blessings or curses, because we know that covenants are intensely important to our God. God is faithful, and God will not renege on promises that God has made. Now, in chapters 28 through 30 of Deuteronomy, we see the continuation of the covenant ratification ceremony that began uh, last chapter, a couple chapters ago, on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebel. Now, there are several important points to note about this ratification. At first, you, you might notice that the list of curses for failing to keep the covenant is way longer than the list of blessings. Now, we also see that those gathered ratify the covenant for all of Israel, which would come after them. And finally, we see that God anticipates Israel's rebellion, exile, and ultimate repentance, and then restoration. I want to look at each of these three points in turn. First, let's talk about the curses and the blessings. Now, as mentioned in a prior podcast, there are some scholars who believe that Deuteronomy was written around the time that Israel was taken into exile. We'll learn more about that time as we get into the the monarchy and the books of Samuel and Kings. Now, if this is the case, 
that might be why the curses in chapter 28 take up like 80% of the chapter. They are much more immediately in mind for the people of Israel at the time of writing. One other way of thinking about why the curses might take up such an inordinate amount of space is because of how we remember things. Uh, Human beings tend to recall negative experiences much more frequently and much more easily than positive ones. Uh, We can think, for example, uh, really easily of a negative experience we've had with a telemarketer or of calling to cancel internet, for example, or get a better rate on it. Anytime we have to do that, we often... Uh, fail to remember the times when it was easy, and most frequently what comes to mind are the times that it was just a miserable experience. We tend to recall negative experiences much more easily than positive ones. Now, whatever the reason for the asymmetry here in Deuteronomy 28, the people of Israel clearly do not want to experience all of these curses. These curses make the plagues against Egypt look like child's play by comparison. It's not a small thing to consider reneging on a covenant you made with God, uh, is I think the moral of this story and what we can take from this chapter. And then in chapter 29, we see the covenant being ratified for all of Israel, both those who are currently present and those who are to come. In this way, the ratification ceremony looks similar to how a local congregation might celebrate the sacrament of baptism. In a baptismal covenant, the local congregation takes oaths to nurture and to care for the newly baptized and their family. But this responsibility isn't just one that the local congregation receives, it is incumbent upon the entire family of faith to nurture and care for the newly baptized and their family. The local congregation is speaking on behalf of the entire Christian church, but if the family moves and begins attending a different church, it's not as if that church is freed from having to fulfill the obligations of the covenant of baptism. Far from it. Um, The local congregation is standing in place of the entire uh, invisible church, the entire capital C church, we would call it. And it's in the same way that the Israelites at this time are sealing this covenant on behalf of all those who would come after them. This can be a difficult thing, I think, for us to understand in the West. Um, As Westerners, we tend to have a built-in preference for the rights of the individual instead of the rights of the community. And signing up an entire people to follow a covenant before that people is even born, that might feel wrong or unfair to us somehow. And yet, we do this whether we recognize it as such or not. You see, different families value different types of skills and abilities. And when we're born into a family, the factory default is to inherit these values. In other words, there is no such thing as a blank slate So with this in mind, the question is not whether your descendants will be influenced by what you value. Rather, the question is how they will be influenced. In the case of the children of Israel, they are willing to put it all on the line to follow their God, Yahweh, who liberated them from Egypt. Uh, Not only are they willing to put it all on the line for themselves, but they're willing to put everything on the line for their children and their children's children and all who will come after them. But the third thing that we might note in these first three chapters is that God anticipates Israel's future failure to abide by this covenant. 
Indeed, close readers just of the Torah are going to notice how frequently the children of Israel stray from God's laws. And at the end of chapter 29, God notes the inevitability of Israel uh, straying from their end of the covenant. This is going to happen. Fortunately, though, as we turn to chapter 30, we see that despite the future rebellion of Israel, God intends to find a way to restore them from captivity. We will see this over and over again in scripture, where the abyss of God's grace is deeper than the abyss of our sin, that over and over again, we play through uh, what a mentor of mine once called the five G's. Uh, That scripture repeats these five G's over and over again. We start with God, then we move to guilt, then grace, then gratitude, then glory. And the, the cycle of sinning and then confessing and return, well, this is God, guilt, grace, gratitude, all sort of mixed together. And glory will come in the full restoration of all things. Uh, we see each of these five Gs come up over and over and over again. But The ordering is really important here, and the ordering is also important in chapter 30. First, a repentant Israel will return to God. Uh, This is why we we see God guilt grace instead of God grace guilt, Um, because it's after we experience guilt and we confess our guilt uh, that that God offers grace. We see this in 1 John 1, 1, 9. It says, For if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So first, a repentant Israel t- returns to God, and then God will return to Israel. This is true for us also in the church. There is often a lag between our decision to return to God and our lived experience of God's mercy and God turning back to us. Uh, And oftentimes it's in that lag that we believe God will not return to us. And that makes our decision pretty hard. Because see, only God can circumcise our hearts. Only God can, in other words, make our hearts sensitive to God's ways. And this work doesn't happen all at once. But once we choose life, Once we make that first move, once we decide to choose the love of God over service to sin, well, it becomes easier for us to continue choosing life the next time and the time after that and the time after that. Perhaps this is what it means to have our hearts circumcised. In the next three chapters of Deuteronomy, Moses concludes his remarks to Israel before uh, he goes to his death. First, God calls Joshua and Moses to the tabernacle, where God charges and commissions Joshua as the new leader before all the people of Israel. And this is important that this happens before the people, because if a leader knows that they're a leader, that's good. But if their followers don't know that they're a leader, well, that may not be as helpful. God wants the Israelites to know that God really is the one in charge, but that God has blessed Joshua as the one to mediate between the people of Israel and God, much as Moses has been doing. So that's where God charges and commissions Joshua as the new leader. And and during this charge, with just Moses and Joshua present, God pulls back the curtain on Israel's future, sharing that Israel's going to break the covenant through pursuing other gods. And despite this future reality, God still 
charges Joshua. God still instructs Joshua to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. Even knowing this reality doesn't stop God from wanting to offer the Israelites this grace of this land of promise. Now, several times in this chapter, Joshua is encouraged to be strong and courageous. And this pair of words is going to be echoed several times in the first part of the book of Joshua because I think courage and strength will be necessary for the next phase of the Israelites' journey. After all, they'll be facing off against the inhabitants of the promised land who seemed like giants in the eyes of the spies who scouted it back in numbers. Now in the final two chapters from this week, Moses composes a song and then a poem of blessing. Each of these are very old, with Deuteronomy 32, the Song of Moses, linguistically dating from as early as the 11th century BC. Similar to Old English poetry, some of the language in these poems is really difficult to parse. So if you compare different translations, you can see pretty clearly where some difficulties exist, since different translations will often render the Hebrew a little differently. Now, despite this, the Song of Moses in chapter 32 does clearly show a couple of things. First, it it clearly teaches the providence and provision of God, that everything that happens on earth happens because of God, that God actually brings both death and life. It also shows that while God is moved by human desire, God is not controlled by it. We, we can see a concrete example of this with Moses, since God allows Moses to see the promised land, but not to enter into it, no matter how much he pleads with God. Deuteronomy 33 is also very old, uh, but it is not quite as old, we think, as Deuteronomy chapter 32. Uh, Moses blesses each of the tribes in this chapter, and we can see uh, several similarities with Jacob's blessing of the tribes in Genesis 49. Uh, Comparing these side by side, we can see definitely some overlap in how the tribes were understood, uh, what their strengths and weaknesses were understood to be. And we can get a sense of what the tribes were known for just by looking at Deuteronomy 33. Three examples here are that Reuben's tribe uh, seems to be in danger of of being extinct, that perhaps because they were on the the edge of Israel on the other side of the the Jordan River, uh, they may have had to rebuff some enemy attacks. We see also that Levi was once perhaps the military arm of the 12 tribes, uh, or or was thought of that way. Uh, We see perhaps that Issachar and Zebulun uh, may have been inseparable, even in blessing. Jeshurun, uh, a term that's used here and in chapter 32, is another name for Israel. So that's all for Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 33. After the break, I'll respond to a question involving how to balance welcoming sojourners and how to balance that with following national immigration law. So our question is from Rita L. and she wrote in, There are multiple admonitions for taking in the immigrant and the sojourner. But I'm conflicted about the influx we have on our southern borders, especially in Texas. As a Christian, I want to be welcoming, but seeing how they're entering illegally in huge numbers, it turns me against them. How are we to reconcile this? And then Rita also adds an aside, saying, We've lived in two foreign countries, and both of them knew where we were and kept tabs on us. We would never have been turned loose to run free. 
So Rita, thanks for your question. Uh, there isn't really a simple answer to the question of immigration. Immigration involves laws at the national level, the state level, and the local level, plus questions of conscience at the personal level. One clear distinction we can draw between America and ancient Israel is that America is not a theocracy. Our national laws are not the Mosaic law, and while our nation has many Judeo-Christian values, we are definitely not ancient Israel. That means how the state is compelled to act and how we are compelled to act as individuals might not look the same. I want to clarify that off the bat because my answer to this question or some of my thoughts to this question have more to do with how we are to act as individuals as opposed to how the state is compelled to act. Um, having a question, having a conversation around how the state can act, that would get into questions of polity. And while I think Christians ought to have some ideas and some opinions about our polity, uh, I know that that can be complicated, and and I don't feel equipped to answer that question in the same way that as a pastor, I, I may be equipped to answer how we as individual Christians are called to respond to this. So there are three issues immediately raised, I think, by Rita's question, and those three issues are the following. First, what distinction, if any, exists between God's commands to care for the sojourner, the orphan, and the widow? Two, how should individual Christians interact with the laws of the land? And three, what prompted God to give the Israelites this guidance? Is this a contextual command or a quote-unquote transcendent command, a command that transcends time, that transcends uh, uh, context to care for the immigrant and the sojourner? These three questions are going to flow one into the other. So we'll start with the first question. Is there a distinction between God's command to care for the orphan, the widow, and the alien? Uh, as far as the commands given to the Israelites, there doesn't seem to be a, a difference or a distinction between these three classes of people. They're all vulnerable, marginalized, potentially oppressed people. Um, and uh, there's no difference or distinction in the Mosaic law. However, the distinction comes when we look at the American legal system. There aren't any penalties legally for being an orphan or widow. In other words, you can't be an illegal orphan or an illegal widow. But according to American laws, you can be an illegal alien. So that leads to the next question. How should Christians interact with the laws of the land? Well, Romans 13 suggests that we have a responsibility to follow the laws of the land, or at least to accept the consequences for failing to follow the laws. However, we always have a responsibility to follow God's laws, even when they conflict with the laws of the state. This means we need to discern whether this law, that is, the law to welcome the sojourner, is a contextual law, that is, is it a law for a certain people at a certain time which might not apply for us today? Or is this a law that transcends context, more similar to the laws against murder or adultery and idolatry in the Ten Commandments? 
This, uh, by the way, is an important question to, a- to, to ask and answer for many commands in Scripture. We uh, ask this question, is it a contextual law or a transcendent law? We, we have to ask this question for Paul's commands about women in leadership in the church. Uh, also for how the Hebrew Bible uh, commands us to keep kosher and, and so on and so forth. So certain purity laws and, and other regulations we have to answer this question for. So how do we go about answering this question? Well, we can look first at what Jesus commands his disciples. This is one way uh, that we can answer this question is by asking ourselves, do we see this multiple places in scripture? Do we see this in both the old covenant and new covenant? So in Matthew 25, Jesus gives six commands to his disciples, including to welcome the stranger. And this seems to suggest that we're called first to offer welcome to immigrants and sojourners, over and against any specific laws of the land. Because if anyone is a stranger, the immigrant, the sojourner, the alien is a stranger. This seems to suggest that God's heart is for the immigrant, the alien, and the sojourner, both in the time of Moses and in our own time. So in the same way that God yearns for God's people to care for the orphan and the widow, we are also called to care for the alien, whether they are here legally or illegally. So why is this so close to the heart of God? Perhaps it's because God's people are not citizens of this world. God's people are aliens and sojourners in this world. We see this all throughout the first epistle of Peter in Hebrews chapter 12. God is so interested in aliens and sojourners because God loves us. Before we identify as American citizens, those of us who live in America, we identify as citizens of heaven, as resident aliens here on earth. Perhaps you're thinking, well, that all sounds nice, but what do we do concretely about people who are breaking the law? Well, I don't know if it's our job as individual Christians to do anything about that. Remember, Jesus tells us to take the log out of our own eyes before trying to take the speck out of our neighbors. Indeed, unless we can trace our ancestry back to indigenous native people, we are here illegally to some degree. We're living on land that is not ours to own. Every non-native American lives on land that was to some degree taken illegally. So if we're going to try and hold stringently to immigration laws, which is a choice we can make, we need to look first at the land we have occupied and ask ourselves, are we here fairly, legally, justly? Now, there's a ton more that can be said about immigration, and this is already over a 700-word answer to the question, but even with that many words, I've oversimplified several aspects of the conversation, and I've missed a ton of nuance. We haven't even asked about, you know, what do we do with our immigration policies? Uh, how, what would motivate someone to cross the border illegally? There is a, a ton of questions remaining to be asked. And so, Rita, I, I'm sorry that I, I didn't get to all the aspects of the question. I wish I could do more justice to it, and I hope that I was able to, to speak to it at least in part. I'm willing uh, also to uh, entertain pushback uh, to my answer to this question. Um, it's something that, that I'm still exploring, so I'd love to hear your thoughts if you have them. Next week, we'll read Deuteronomy 34 along with Joshua 1-5, through 5, and 
In Joshua, that's where we're going to begin at long last to see how Israel enters into the promised land. As you read, may God bless you in your reading of Scripture. Thank you.